Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey there, welcome to this week's episode of Living Through It. Okay, so many of you may be wondering, as we are now a week away from the midterm elections, whether or not we're really going to be able to save democracy. And I will tell you that the conversation that you're about to listen to between myself and Anand Giridharis about his brand new book, The Persuaders, will have you thinking about what's possible. I found this conversation so profoundly moving um, and so full of hope. And one of the things that I'd like you to think about as you're listening to this is about the conversations that we have every day and the way that we approach one another as citizens of the world and as Americans, if you live here. The conversations that we have moment to moment, the ways in which we engage with one another, hold all the potential for a better future. So I'm excited to hear a response to this. Thanks for listening in. And we're back. And I'm so excited to welcome Anand Giridharis to the podcast. This has been an interview that I've been really excited about. And we are here to talk about his brand new book, The Persuaders. The subtitle, which is at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Welcome. Thank you so much. Congrats on the new show and very excited to be part of it. Yay. Well, I will tell you that, um, as you know, you were kind enough to send me an advanced reader copy of the book and I have been plowing through it and it has been um, just such a wake up call to me in a lot of ways. You know, I have thought for so long about the issue of bridge building and collaborative movements and I've spent a lot of my work as an activist and an organizer talking about how we effectively build collaborative cross-identity movements. And it really wasn't until I was sitting and reading the opening chapters of this book on the soccer field while my kid was playing the other day where I, I realized that so much of the way in which we think about coalition building these days, as you point out in the book, is, is really about building it from within our bubble. And that in fact, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but such a big point of this book is actually that, no, it's got to be about building coalitions outside of our bubble and how we do that. Totally. And I, I, I love that you say it made you think in that way, because of course it's a book about persuaders, but it's also a book meant to persuade. And I, and, and I think the, you know, my, my book before this one, this is my fourth book. My third one was a book about billionaires and that was a book of criticism. And it was in many ways, an attack on a small group of people who are uh, kind of strangulating the planet for profit. This book is really different. This book is a loving intervention, like with family, you know? Yeah. Um, this is a book that intends, and the people I'm trying to intervene with are your and my circles and allies and fellow travelers and people we wish well and who wish us well. Um, but the, it grew out of a concern that those of us, broadly speaking, on the pro-democracy side of the ledger in America, because it's not, it's not about Republicans and Democrats anymore. There's a, as you know, pro-democracy side, anti-democracy side, a fascist side, and an anti-fascist side. The book grew out of a concern that the pro-democracy side um, had fallen into a kind of pessimism, a fatalism about the possibility of other people changing, uh, about the possibility of spreading its ideas and a kind of anti-persuasive culture, even though, as I argue in the book, persuasion is essential activity of a free society, democratic life. The whole point of not having a king, like all societies face decisions about the future, right? Are we gonna let those blend to our village? 
you know, are, are horses allowed in this village? Uh, do we drain the lake or do we not drain the lake every November, right? F- throughout time. Mm-hmm. The issue is, do you just let one guy make those decisions because that's easier and more efficient, which has been the answer for like 90 something percent of human history in all societies. And in the last few hundred years, we try this other thing, which is like, no, 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 no. Let's just have a perpetual rollicking, roiling 24 seven conversation with each other, all millions of us. And let's choose the future together through that. And while that is now the normal way we choose the future, you can imagine how wild an idea it was when they were doing it the other way. Um, we embarked on this experiment, as did many other countries, uh, in choosing the future through talk. And that is premised on the possibility of that talk having an effect on each other, on me hearing something and saying, you know what? I do kind of feel like marriage is between a man and a woman because that's what I grew up with and that's what I saw and that's what my you know, religious text says. However, you're right. Donnie is a really nice kid. And and you're right. I, I don't I don't want Donnie to have a sad, lonely life. You're right. That's interesting. That's interesting, right? And how many millions of people, you know, including many you and I, no, went on that literal journey that I just described on that issue in your and my lifetime. Yep. Right? And so democracy depends on the possibility that we can change each other's minds, on the belief that it's possible. And I became very concerned that many of us in the pro-democracy space, and I have fallen into this myself. You wrote some tweets about how you have fallen into this yourself. Oh, yes. We get so anguished with how bad things are, with how awful things are, with how ridiculous it is that people could vote for some of this madness, that we go one step deeper into, they'll never change, they'll never come back. That's just who they are. And when we do that, we're doing two things. We are inviting over time, tyrants to come back in because we are saying to them, sir, we can't resolve this among ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like when my kids, I'm sure you have, like when my kids can't resolve an issue amongst themselves, that's when I step in. If they can figure things out, they can do a lot of whatever they want. It's when they can't figure it out that I come in with my, you know, with my authoritarian uh, fist. And, and the second thing we do when we give up on each other and give up on persuasion is we invite the possibility of political violence. If I feel like I, there's no world in which I can get the world I want, the world I feel my kids deserve through changing your mind, if I know that that's impossible in my bones, I start to think about other ways of getting the world I want for my kids. Um, and so I wrote the book, as I said, to lovingly intervene uh, with, with many of us on the pro-democracy side to say, look, persuasion is still possible. Uh, the the data show it. A lot of people who liked Donald Trump the first time did not like him the second time. And that's why you and I have not had to live under his presidency for the last couple of years. That's real. You can, you can kind of adopt a cynicism as a pose, but it is a fact that there was defection between the first term and the possible second term. And that's why he's not president, right? It is a fact that the views on LGBT folks in our lifetime has undergone a metamorphosis kind of unparalleled in history. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it is it is a fact that we are talking and reckoning with race right now, that white people are accounting for their whiteness in ways that are unimaginable for the first, you know, however many hundred years of this country's life. So as bleak as things are, it is important not to tell the false story, the disinformation that nothing ever changes and people don't change. People change all the time. And I decided to to channel through reporting a bunch of people who are doing what I'm not succeeding at doing, maybe what you felt you sometimes struggle to do in those weak moments. I set out to speak to these organizers and activists who refuse to write people off, not out of some kumbaya, milquetoast, moderate, mushy middle bullshit, but because they want to win. I'm writing about a bunch of people who believe in other people because they want to win. They refuse to live in an America in which their ideas don't win. And they are willing to listen, show up, empathize, build the right pitches, 
you know, bite their tongue in certain moments, speak the truth in other moments, be strategic in order to get that world they and their kids deserve. Yeah, it's one of the things about reading the book that really just um, jumped out at me because I've I've had the fortune in the last several years to be in the company of people like some of the people that you've profiled. Um, I had a chance to interview Linda Sarsour at one point. Um, I've been lucky enough to sit with the women and non-binary people who are running the National Network of Abortion Funds, for instance, on organizing calls. And the experience that you have when you're in the company of activists and organizers who make room for everyone, who create these kind of zones of conversation that you describe so well in the opening chapters of the book uh, is a really revolutionary experience. Because even on an emotional and a, almost a cellular level, you, you sit with the understanding that there is space for differing viewpoints. And that even the ones that may feel like they're outside the lines of what you and I would think were reasonable will be addressed in a manner of respect and with exactly the point of your book, persuasion. So it brings me to a question that I wanted to ask because um, one of the people that you profile in the opening chapters of the book is Loretta Ross. And her story in particular is remarkable. You know, She's somebody who was a rape victim, who was working at a rape crisis center, when she was contacted by a convicted rapist in prison who said, I want to stop raping. Can you help me? And her decision-making through that, which you walk through in the opening chapters of the book, um, is, is even revolutionary to read because you really feel the struggle that she went through in the decision-making about how to respond to that and what to do with it. And eventually she did, as you described, go into prisons and for several years do exactly that work with men who were convicted rapists, with the understanding, of course, that you can't solve the problem just by dealing with victims, right? Um, and I, again, that in and of itself was so interesting to me. But one of the things that she said in the book was that um, the ability to make room for growth and assume that growth is possible and really be grounded in a desire for growth and not just a desire for punishment or revenge, and I'm quoting there, um, is really key to her view of what persuading and building movement is about. Um, and it requires the ability, and this was really key for me, to not only give it, but also to receive it. So there's a certain degree of like emotional responsibility, I think, that comes with the the not just the profile of Loretta Ross, but also what so many of the people you've profiled in the book are about. Um, and I wonder, I found myself wondering, what do we need to be able to do that? Because I think not all of us are capable of it, right? Uh, it's such a good question. And I want to I want to preface my answer with something else she also says, to be very clear, lest she be understood or misunderstood or, or I be misunderstood, which is no one has to do any of this work. This is all elective. There's no way Loretta Ross is saying all rape victims need to go work with rapists. Right. She's not saying any rape victim needs to go work with rapists. Or that all black people need to do anti-racism work or insert XY, right? On any number of issues. And she very strongly, clearly says not a single black person needs to go talk to white people. Not a single immigrant needs to go talk to bigots on the border in Arizona, you know, militiamen. Never. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. She then says, some of us, a small minority probably, will want to do that and will be motivated to do that because, because we're in a healed enough place to handle it. Um, she talks about kind of personal healing as a kind of precondition to be able to do that. And because we not only feel we can handle it, but feel like the country, the payoff of getting the country we want is, is worth it. Um, I think the moment I describe in the book where she, Loretta Ross, who, by the way, won a, a MacArthur Genius Grant today. The day we're recording this. Yes. Remarkable. So, so deserved. So deserved. Um, I describe in a little bit of depth the scene, the moment when she's at this rape crisis center. And she gets this letter saying, I raped women on the outside. Now I'm inside. I raped men in the inside. I want to stop raping. What do I do? what a letter to receive. And the reason I dwell on her receiving that letter and her decision and her board's decision or, or staff decision at the time is I actually think, although it's a very weird and extreme example, I actually think it raises a quite universal question that a lot of the organizers and activists I was talking to grapple with, which is 
we're kind of working over here, trying to protect people from this, from that, from CBP on the border, from, you know, militiamen, from people who are, you know, trying to cops who are trying to shoot them or for any like it's so much of the pro-democracy movement today is a movement of defense against like very dark forces oppressive forces predatory forces and that's the self-identity and that's the mission statement and that's just the work as it is understood and what this letter did was say wow as a rape crisis center like male rape reduction was like never discussed in any of our meetings, you know? And maybe some would say like, there's a good reason for that. That's just an immovable thing. But, you know, and I I, I would find that hard to believe. I don't think anything's immovable in that sense. But you can understand why a rape crisis center would just not traditionally spend a minute thinking about male rape reduction as, as what it does. But that letter forced this question. And at first, I think, Loretta's reaction was, no, it's not our work. Who are you to, you know, I mean, you can imagine a rape crisis center, not a lot of money, not a lot of resources. Every dime is being stretched. Um, Who are you, man? Not just man, but like rapist, admitted rapist out of prison and in prison. Who are you to consume a dime of our resources, right? There's some woman who's not going to get a checkup because we're like buying you books or whatever. How can you justify that? That's a kind of obvious first reaction that I think she and a lot of her colleagues had. And then the second reaction was, what are we here for? Like, we can't just keep bandaging women. Stopping rape is actually the ultimate purpose here. And how had we never thought of our work as being to stop the phenomenon? And I just thought that was such a profound grappling from a woman who is so deeply credible and respected in that those activism and organizing circles, whose you know whose credentials as someone whose focus on women and what women need first is unimpeachable, but who let herself just take a second beat to say, "Huh, I'm persuaded that maybe my work is broader than I understood it to be." And she went in there. She went down to Lorton. In with, you know, she has this amazing sense of like moral seriousness and a bit of a, like a bit of a, like a kind of a, a poker, a joker in her. And, you know, she, she brings a bunch of feminist literature for this guy, like n- no, no easy on-ramps for this guy. Right. And, and she found out that he had actually been reading on his own feminist literature in prison. And he changed a lot. And it led to this whole movement called Prisoners Against Rape, which spread and others took it on and there were education and there's, I think, a documentary about it. I think, you know, what it illustrated to me was one woman's faith that people can change in the most extreme case where writing off is almost the obvious thing to do, the right thing to do. And I think it raises the question that a lot of others in the book are grappling with in somewhat less extreme forms of what is the role for white people in an anti-racist struggle? Is there a role for an issue I've written about a lot, and I may be on the wrong side of this relative to what I'm saying right now, is there a role for like business people in a more fair economy or is it just kind of over their objections and their dead body kind of thing? Like, is there a role for men in a in getting to a gender equal world, right? And I think that basic question that she grappled with to me feels like one of the questions of the hour in America today. I think so much of our attention is on protecting people from predatory systems. And somehow the very big obvious matter of we basically need 150 million men to behave in a completely different way than any men in human history have ever been socialized to behave. And we need it done ASAP. And good luck, guys. (laughs) Right. There's no (laughs) programs. Like, I don't mean this is a generalization, but I think this is like a, and I avoid gender, but I think this is like a true one. Like, my wife, like I, her friends, like women read books about the experience of being women. 
right? And like educate mm-hmm. themselves about those issues. Like almost no man I know reads books about the experience of being a man, right? So we're living in this time where basically like the old way of being a man is like not okay, right? Like the best man in 1950 did things that like the worst guy today wouldn't do, even if he's doing other terrible things, right? They're just like, we have hugely changed the standards. We've moved millions and millions of men into the new standard already successfully, and it's great. We've not moved a whole bunch of others. But if but if the way our movement shows up is like, you better come correct and like call us when you get there, well, that's a big problem because they're not. And women are the first people who suffer when those men are not successfully migrated when they recoil at the migration. If our if our stance on white people is, sorry, like you're the first generation of white people to even know about whiteness, right? Like the whole point of whiteness is that your parents and grandparents literally didn't even know it existed. They just thought they were Americans, all American or whatever, normal Americans. Um, welcome to the first generation where you got to take this on. You got to take it seriously. Again, we've successfully migrated millions and millions of white people to a new paradigm. It's, it's amazing work that has been done. We don't celebrate this enough. It's a remarkable achievement. It's not happening everywhere, by the way. I would say this is not even happening in Europe in no. any of the ways that it's happening here. But then we, then again, we got a whole bunch more that we haven't quite persuaded into the new way of being. And I, I again, fear that our stance is sometimes like, call us when you get there, Yeah, you know? And I just think we need, we need a plan for these mass psychological transitions that people are going through, that we expect people to go through, not out of some kumbaya thing once again, but because I don't want my kids to live in an America in which we got like 150 million people refusing to cross the threshold of modernity, throwing rocks from the cheap seats. It's not going to be good. Right. Or firing automatic weapons. Yes. Correct. Uh, yes, I agree completely. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about things like the Mankind Project and the Good Man Project and the very limited universe in which they work. Um, and also about, you know, and this is mentioned in your book as well, you know, I feel like Alicia Garza and Linda Sarsour both talk about their own journeys in relation to calling white folks into their own work or making decisions to stretch beyond the work that they are doing in their own communities to get more movement building underway. And these are tough negotiations. I mean, I, I, I really, I will be very honest. I found myself calling myself on the carpet when I was reading some of this, because I have been the person and probably because this is how it was done to me, right? I have been the person who was called to anti-racism work because of my own blind spots, And then in turn, when I've had other people in my arena, in my activist work, in my own communities who are not there yet, my response has been um, very similar, for instance, to one of the things that Alicia describes in your book, to this fundraising dinner where a woman made an error that is very vaguely described um, and was promptly kind of, sounds as though, attacked at the dinner to the point where she left and, and as Alicia notes, probably wouldn't return. I have I have been guilty of that conduct myself. And, and so in thinking about how we extend through this, you know, one of the things that you point out in um in the chapter about whether or not love is enough, which I just love the title of, is that actually we have to give people room uh, to grieve old ways of being and simultaneously pull them along through the process. And I guess the question I have for you about this is that, you know, there's so much discussion, and you mentioned this in the book as well, about emotional labor and the demands uh, on marginalized folks of all sorts to do the emotional labor of pulling along people who are privileged or who are not yet awake. Um, And I wonder, is that really the necessary approach? Because, you know, a lot of folks, for instance, in the feminist circles in which I travel, think that men should be doing this work amongst themselves, just in the same way that so many of my Black activist friends would prefer that white women do their tears over their guilt about white supremacy in their own circles when they're coming to terms with how they're going to address how white supremacy lives in them. Um, And so what are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like you're walking a really fine line in the book and I love the knife's edge of it, but but it's a really fine edge. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't think I say in the book that marginalized people should do that. 
No, yeah. I'm not suggesting you do. No. I, in fact, I think I, you were very careful about not saying that. I, I think what is true is that some marginalized people want to do that work. And, you know, let's let's be honest. I mean, we, you don't need 150 million organizers in the country. You know, we're talking about, when it comes to organizing and activism, we're talking about a few thousand people doing work, you know, at a certain level that is having impact on millions of people. So it can be true that 99.9% of Black folks do not want to spend a minute of their time walking white people through anything. <laughs> yes. and, and that there will still be plenty of Black activists who absolutely do want to do that work, yep. who are doing that work, and are delighted to do that work. And are delighted and totally get, you know, that other people don't want to. Loretta Ross, again, says, do the work that works for you. We don't all have to do the same work, you know. Um, I would also say that I'm a big believer in people doing that own work that work within their communities. I, I I do think the natural thing here on the, you know, changes happening with men is for men who have crossed the threshold of modernity to do work with those who haven't and things like the Mankind Project. One of the people I write about in the book in that love chapter is mm-hmm. actually a Mankind Project member, an old firefighter from Cleveland um, and, and white people doing work with white people and so on and so forth. I sometimes think we can get into a place where we're too boundary on those things, mm-hmm. there is a very powerful effect to people interacting across difference. Yes. The progress on gay rights was not straight people talking to straight people about gayness. It was contact. It was contact with difference. It was contact with people you loved or worked with who were different. So I think it's important to protect people from not doing a damn thing they don't want to do. But I think we'd be lying to people if we said these can all be intramural conversations about the other that fix the everything. And then you just come out of the door. Magically ready to rock. <laughs> and now you're just ready to treat people. Well, you know, I mean, I would love if we lived in that world, I think in reality, what's going to move a lot of white people over the next generation is what has moved a lot of white people already, which is contact, which is interaction, which is people you love who challenge your way of thinking. Again, this is no one's job, but I think I said this in, in a talk in 2017 at the at the first Obama summit right after he left office where a talk that kind of seeded the book. And I said, you know, the, the burden of citizenship is accepting that what is not your fault may be your problem. And so I get the norms now around like, that's not my work, that's not, and like power to you. No one has to do a thing they don't want to do, but I think citizenship is also accepting that what is not your fault may be your problem. It's not my, climate change is not my fault. I have, you know, both me personally and my generation have emitted quite a small fraction of the total emissions to date. Not my fault is my problem, right? I think in, in, you know, Germany is a very extreme example. There's young people, 20 year olds in Germany today. The Holocaust was not their fault. They, 20 year olds in Germany today accept that it's their problem. Right. Right. And so that's that's what it means to belong to something. And it is a fine line uh, because no one should have to do work they don't want to do. It is not the burden of women to drag men into the future. It's not the burden of people of color to drag white people into the future. But I do think we're going to need a small army of people uh, willing to do what they shouldn't have to, willing to accept that what is not their fault, is their problem, who feel they have thick enough skin, as Loretta Ross says, who feels that they are in a healed enough place to build those bridges. And the last thing I'll say on this is Loretta Ross, Alicia Garza, many others in the book make a distinction. And I want to be very clear. We're not talking about everybody on the far side from you politically. There are distinctions and there are distinctions within distinctions, right? Loretta has a very clear scheme for this. She called it her, your 90 percenters, your 75 percenters, your 50 percenters, your 25 percenters, and your zero percenters. There are people who, they're not just fascist because they like the clothes, you know, like they're right. really fascist. Right. They really, they, they've, they've read the books. They've gone down the YouTube rabbit holes. They've thought about it. 
they're in. They're in for fascism, right? And at some level, like, you got to, like- Write them off. Good luck, y'all. I, I don't think that's 50% of America. I don't remotely think that's 50% of America. I think that is a, you know, alarmingly large, I don't know that you said 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%. It's in that zone. It's bigger than it ought to be, for sure. We got 40 million people who believe in QAnon. Like, that's, you know, we, we have a lot of people. But that's not all of us. It's not most of us. There's the, a next group after that, and on that's true on both sides, a next group after that that may vote, their voting behavior, if that's all you're looking at, looks quite similar to the true believers. But if you talk to them, and I'm a journalist, like I've talked to voters all my career, right? We talk to this second group. They don't have a baked worldview. They may vote similarly much of the time. They also are more likely to swap around, get swept up in waves. Right? These are the people, these are the families who like, there's a great book about this, like voted for FDR and then migrated to Reagan and then, you know, loved Obama and voted for Trump. Like these are people voting on vibes as as like people of your kid's generation would say, yes. right? And and like, we can joke about that, but like, I don't know, I think there's something to that. I think, I think there's like a lot of information and vibes <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and there's, and people are making decisions about, does this person seem like they're going to fight for me? Do they feel like frauds? Do feel, does it feel like there's a lot behind the curtain that I can't know about them? Are there financial entanglements? Whatever. People are making these kind of guttural decisions. And that second group of more persuadable people, um, they're kind of at the heart of what I'm talking about. They're at the heart of what some of the organizers and activists I'm talking to for the book are talking about. It is that group that they're optimistic about. Because that group, they have stances, they have positions, they may have party registrations, but they do not have a coherent worldview. And depending on how issues are presented to them, depending on who is presenting them, depending on relatively superficial factors, they can toggle into quite right-wing ways of looking at the world and quite left-wing ways of looking at the world. And I think... You know, you and I probably spend a lot of time with people who spend a lot of time thinking about politics. So you probably don't regularly hang out with people who like don't walk around with a worldview on their sleeve. I have a couple in my most, family, but yes. <laughs> but like, but like most people are not walking around with a worldview on their sleeve. And those are the people we need to be thinking about. Yeah. I, I found that percentage breakdown fascinating and the strategies around it fascinating. And to me, it was one of the, you know, the big moments of what, how do our tactics change depend on, depending on who we're mobilizing with in that regard? Um, I want to say two things about that, though, because one of the things that's really um, just of interest to me about the opening of the book, the introduction of the book, you talk about the way in which social media influence that was conducted by trolls uh, and rather bots um, mobilized by the Kremlin had an impact on all of us, central nervous system regulation, feelings, thoughts, actions. We're all a lot more conscious about it now than we were in 2016. Um, but there's a lot in there from a, a sort of sociological standpoint in terms of what happens when we draw division, when we create division and how that impacts what people think is possible that we now see being replicated pretty much nonstop in the GOP and on the far right. Um, you know, the idea that people who are lost are, are hopeless, that there's no way that we're going to meet in the middle. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just in terms of the weaponization of Hunter Biden's addiction, when the reality is that he's sober and clean now and has been for some time. And, you know, nonetheless, there's this incredible force of blame and shame and, uh, you know, artificial horror um, at his illness. And, you know, that is designed, it seems to me, to put people who struggle on one side and, you know, say we're over here being pure, even if that's hypocrisy or gaslighting. Um, and that division then creates an us and them kind of mentality. Um, and so I want to get your take on that. And then also I want to talk a little bit about um, Anat Shankar Osorio, who is a bridge builder in messaging on exactly this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, wow. Uh I think what's so interesting about, I mean, let me start with Anat and then kind of back into the rest of it. The the problem that Anat, like so many people who are working in progressive politics faces, 
is not only a disinformation crisis, it is this kind of broader um, crisis of mutual dismissal that the Russians stoked. And I actually started with the Russian, the chapter on the Russian trolls, because I wanted us to understand that we are being manipulated into even further contempt of each other than we think. Um, and one important distinction here, I, I think there's a way that people less sophisticated than you would misread my book as like a plea to like turn down the temperature or like, or like douse the anger or like, let's, let's cool things that like my book's not that. No. Right. Um, I actually think anger is a totally normal and anger and division, I would say, right. Which are two words. People are always like railing at. I think anger and division are fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a question of how, how you express them, but like broadly speaking, what, like, my academic training before I became a journalist was political theory, political philosophy, like Machiavelli, Kant. Like I say the theory of what politics is. Politics is a negotiation between like, who should we help first, your kids or my parents, right? Like what is more important? Like your ability to grow almonds or my ability to drink water, right? Like. What's more important, your small business's ability to grow or like the safety of my kids with those toys? Every single political question is a kind of, is a kind of tech, it's, it's, a, it's a question that can't be resolved with like a technical answer. There's no science answer to political questions, right? Even masking vaccines, these are not like technocratic questions. They're political questions because they're about what do you value? Uh, do you want this more? Do you want that more? And there's there's not a right answer for many of these things, right? And there's a right answer for like, is climate real? There's not a right answer for what's the best way to save the world. I mean, there's a lot of right answers, a lot of different possibilities, and they depend on what your values are, what you're willing to sacrifice, who you're willing to sacrifice, who should suffer the most, who should struggle the most, who should gain the most. These are hard questions. The whole point of democracy is to have these debates, and it's going to get real. It's going to get angry. It's going to get tense because we are talking about your kids and my parents and who gets that resource first. What I am railing against in this book is not anger and division. It is dismissal and contempt. And these are really different from anger and division. I want to make that really explicit because dismissal and contempt are the end of democracy. It basically says, like, I can't do business with those people. I can't choose the future with those people. Anger and division are just the cost of doing business, right? And so that distinction is very important. And so when I think of the work of someone like Anat Shankar Osorio, this progressive messaging guru who is just so brilliant and has so much to teach all of us, her challenge is this culture in which people are, as she says, the opposition is not the opposition, it's it's cynicism. Her challenge is getting people to say something can actually be done. And what she is constantly trying to teach progressives and, and liberals is the classic way of doing it on the left is to start with a beautiful, ambitious, philosophical demand, like everyone should have healthcare. And then to pour a shit ton of water in the bowl with that demand. And if there's any, uh, if there's any home cooks listening, you will know that that just makes not, <laughs> not delicious food. Um, so you get private sector insurance and only this, no pre-existing conditions, but that, and it doesn't apply if you have this. And And I'm like incredibly fortunate. But I will tell you, if I have things that I don't feel are like a real existential risk to me, I kind of avoid going to the doctor because like you just never know when like a $6,000 bill for some like arbitrary, like you didn't, you didn't, fill out the pre-authorization form. So I just kind of avoid it. Little, little lump or bump here or this and that is like, 
I just try to ride it out. That's insane. Mm -hmm. It's insane that I do that, but Mm -hmm. I, but I do that. A lot of people do that, right? That's what you get when you start with that noble idea and you just like pour a ton of water in it. That's the reigning democratic party theory of persuasion. Let me lurch towards this mushy middle. What Anat is trying to do, like a lot of the people in the book are in different forms, is essentially turn that model of persuasion upside down and say, no, 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 you don't reach, you don't persuade by just diluting and reaching out to the middle. You persuade by standing right where you are, rooting those feet deeply in the ground, standing bravely in the truth of what you believe and figuring out how to jazz up those people in the middle so they want to come to you, right? Um, It's still a pursuit of common ground, but it's a desire for common ground slightly closer to your feet than their feet. And her reigning theory of kind of how you do that, which is becoming a more and more influential theory in progressive and liberal circles, is you do that by having your movement, your cause, your ambitions be so attention-getting, provocative, exciting, uh, kind of prone to repeating. People want to just talk about it all the time. That the more worldview-starved people who are still in play are like, huh, like, I wonder what, what's up with those people, right? Um, I don't think it is an oversimplification to say, like, you kind of just want to throw a better party. Yes. As opposed to, like, being a kind of pleaser of a vast, variegated group of undecided people. Yeah. They don't know what they want. Why would you cater to the wants of people who don't know what they want? Right. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Moderation is not a stance. It's not an ideological place. It's not a philosophy. It's right. they don't know what they think yet. You have to make them excited about what you think and make them think it's normal. And so one like very practical example of that, thinking about the Biden agenda. If you, I think, rate things from, and I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to speak for, I'm not here. I don't know that she would share this exact application of her work. But if you look at something like the Inflation Reduction Act, big, powerful thing. Right. But just because of what it is and how it's structured and the time horizon, like no American's life was or will be transformed this year by the Inflation Reduction Act. It's just not that kind of thing. Like it will greatly increase the odds that we can have great, 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 great grandchildren. Yes. But <laughs> big, big. But that's not a thing anyone feels. Right. Whereas like the student debt thing although potentially kind of smaller in the way we normally think of, right? Uh, Not affecting everyone, right? Um, A targeted group of millions of people. For every single one of those people, right? They will remember where they were standing when they heard. Yep. And I think if you have a traditional Democratic Party lens, it's obvious to you that something like the IRA is like big, important legislation and something like the student debt thing is kind of like forgettable or small, like, or just don't do it or too complicated or makes people too angry. And I think once you have the anot lens on what actually wins and persuades, you say, if I can do something for 10 million people in a country of 350 million people, that is the only thing they're going to be talking about for the rest of the year. Right that they're going to be bending every relative's ear about at Thanksgiving, that they're going to be tweeting about and gramming about and TikToking about. Yeah, do it. Do that right. thing. Right. It's a third of the residents of California who are impacted by student debt, which is, wow. you know, it's crazy to me, right? It's like 10 million, I guess it's more like a quarter because we're 39.5 million, but it's an enormous percentage of the population of my state alone. And, you know, I think about this, it's like 10 grand, it's nice to have the 10 grand, but you know, you wipe away somebody's student debt forever. That is a life altering moment. And I agree with you. It's one of those things where, you know, there's been a lot of pushback from certain circles on the left that it's not, you know, it doesn't really make that much of a difference or he can't do it by the sweep of a pen. But you're right. When you look at it through the lens of how does it carry forward in terms of political momentum? How does it change people's lives in a way where they stay committed to a better future? It's that. It's stuff like that. 
So I'm completely with you on that. Well, this has been great. I have to ask you our final three questions before I let you go that we ask everyone. Um, the first is what keeps you going? What keeps me going is, although it's not fashionable to say, I think this country is pretty great, you know? And I don't think we say that enough. Mm. I think we concede that message to people who are, you know, shooting beer bottles in their backyard training for something. I think this country is great. And I think it's great because its ideals are great. I think it's great because there is an idea of liberty at the core that, you know, was a radical idea in the world. It was a hypocritical idea in its application. It, it, it was an idea so bold in its time that the people who wrote it didn't have the courage to apply it to themselves or fully to the society, but still a radical idea in the history of the world. Liberty, not just from kings. You know, my family comes from India. In India, in in recent decades, at least, the, the enemy of liberty has not been, you know, kings. It's been like the tyranny of family and customs and ideas of what women's place are and ideas of what low caste people's place are. And that that idea of, I think, self-invention and self-creation and and living unencumbered by other people's ideas of what and who you should be. That's a really radical, powerful idea at the heart of the American story. America is marred by its failure to live up to that idea, but I don't think the idea is marred. And my family coming from India to this country, my parents had the incredible fortune of availing of that of that power of that idea of that bounty. And what keeps me going is the fact that I, this country is actually closer than I think we often tell ourselves to realizing that idea in ways that it wasn't brave enough to do Mm. for the first few hundred years. Um, I think this country is on the verge of coming into an honest self-understanding of its history um, that's a real shift from when you and I were children. You and I didn't learn any of this stuff in school. No. I think this country is on the verge of creating what Fox News fears, but is beautiful, which is a country made of the world. You know, I go to Europe. There's, there's minorities in Europe, but those are all white countries that are quite quite determined to stay overwhelmingly white. Uh, that are not wrestling with colonialism the way we are talking about race and native genocide and other things that are in many ways still very much about their Frenchness and about a certain conception of what that is and about their, you know, um, about their Italian, (laughs) certainly now. Um, Mm. And I think we're actually trying to do something different. I think we're trying to build a country of the world. I think we're trying to build a country you know, that looks like a New York City subway car, which at least to me is a great place to be. People people doing great, some people struggling, but people who look like everything and from everywhere who, who get along because they, they're chasing uh, certain rhyming dreams. And that keeps me going because I don't want to let the fascists, the the resenters, the insurrectionists. I don't want to let them be the protagonists of this story. I am not living, nor are you, in reaction to them. They are living in reaction to us. I want to make that very clear. We are the protagonists of the story. We are the ones fighting to open this country up, and it's being opened up for our benefit. Neither you nor I, for different reasons, would have been having this conversation in most prior generations of history in most places. Um, And so we're doing something. We're getting somewhere. We're building a kind of country worth building. And there's a bunch of people who would rather break the country than share it. And we're going to beat them. And we're going to beat them very badly. But we have to figure out the habits that are not working for us as a movement and embrace new habits and embrace, ultimately, I believe, this idea of changing minds of persuasion. And that keeps me going. Yeah. I mean, it brings so much to the table in the context. What I'm sitting here thinking about is how we grow up and how we how we stop being 
um, all or nothing. And we come to a place of, uh, of conversation. And I think you're right. It is there, there is room in that for anger. There is even room in that for division. I think that how we come to these more difficult conversations and how we come to a place of trusting that we can have them in a way that creates growth is the space that I hope we're moving into now. I mean, I feel like this book does that beautifully in terms of the invitation of it. So, um, so I agree with you. That's wonderful. Um, what are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the world right now? How much time do you have? I know this is like a rapid fire, <laughs> you rapid fire round, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think the, I mean, besides there's like the obvious stuff, right? The obvious outrages. I actually think my biggest concern is not the outrageous people doing outrageous things. Cause that's kind of baked in and priced into the stock as they say. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest concern is that those of us who want something different, who want more democracy, more inclusion, more justice, a country that works for all, that we will rest on the laurels of our righteousness and feel as though it's enough to be right, to want the right things. That if your heart is good, then you just kind of tell the people what you're offering and you let the chips fall where they do. And I don't think that's gonna beat fascism. My concern is that there is a high-minded, wonky, emotionally obtuse, kind of remote, aspect to the pro-democracy side, a kind of uh, an aversion to fighting, a kind of contempt for the lower arts of appealing to emotion and sentiment and psychology. And I think these traits are going to send us into fascism. And I think right there in our midst, there's there's a bunch of people in these spaces, maybe not listened to as much as they ought to be, who are pointing another way, who are showing that it's okay to fight and here's how. Pushing, it's okay to use language in a slightly more stealthy and 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 strategic way. And here's how that it's okay to create rallies that give people a sense of transcendence and exuberance. And you can do that for good. And here's how that it's okay to build and invest in media that kind of wraps around the consciousness of a lot of people and helps meaning make around the bewildering events of a bewildering time. And Perhaps the main reason I I profiled the persuaders I did was because I think they deserve to be listened to. A lot of them are in this book, uh, perhaps a majority are black and brown women. Um, I was very conscious of writing this book at a time when there were these real reckonings and conversations going on. Um, The New York Times review that came out today said, you know, I, I handed over the mic a lot and I did that for a reason, you know, I... I've had a lot to say in my other books, and I have a lot to say in this one in my own way. But this is really a book trying to center a bunch of people who I think the pro-democracy side needs to listen to even more than they are now. Because I think the answers are here, and I think there's people on the ground saying them. Um, I think we just need to abandon some of the forgotten, the, some of the, the failed ways of of the past or the inadequate ways and embrace this kind of what I would think of as an organizer's playbook. Um, for defeating fascism. Yeah, it's it, it's also a model that just demands growth. And that for me is one of the things that makes it so appealing. It, it creates possibility even in the imagination of it that people can change and come together and commit to something bigger for the betterment of all of us. Um, and the roadmaps into it vary depending on where you're coming from and who you're talking to. But the overarching vision is an ideal participatory democracy. And it's beautiful. I mean, it makes room, it's actually very moving to me. It's really about the better nation that we could be and what the roadmap is to get there. So I'm so grateful for it. Okay, last question. How can we best work to do this? And I know that's what the whole book is about, but if there's one thing that you would want us to point the audience to, to point all the great activists and organizers who listen in to me, uh, in the direction of, what would it be? I think given who you are and who your audience is, uh, my sense is the most useful thing I could say is uh, it would be amazing if people listen listening to this 
um, train themselves in a method called deep canvassing, which I devote the final chapter of the book to. It is a process through which people go door to door. And if you've done door to door canvassing before, this is not like that. Mm -hmm. This is not, Hey, do you have a plan to vote? Thanks so much. See you later. This is not, uh, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am canvassing. This is uh, half an hour on the door, 45 minutes on the door, um, talking to people, surfacing deeply their, their views, listening to the often awful things people say, not hiding who you are and how you've come to this issue, but also listening really empathetically listening and then trying to mine within people surface within them, their own sort of sources of dissonance with that first thought, that stance, that prejudice. And this method has been shown in peer reviewed academic studies to move minds on issues like LGBT rights, like immigration, Um, move it as much as years of passive social change. And so a thing every single person listening to this can do is get trained in deep canvassing. You do it online. You can sign up, just Google deep canvassing training. There's groups called People's, a big group called People's Action that is kind of an umbrella organization of groups operating in local communities around the country. Um, You can just go get trained in it. I I got trained in it just for the purposes of doing this reporting. You do some phone calls, you do a little phone banking, they teach you and then go do it. I think we need, you know, it would be amazing if we could get not a few thousand, like imagine if a million people on the pro-democracy side, like one, 1% of people on the pro-democracy side were to get trained in this method and start going around their communities, talking people through their dissonances, walking with people through the struggles of trying to become a new kind of man in the 21st century, being a new kind of white person in the 21st century, grappling with the demands of climate change, grappling with the demands of a changing economy that means you can't do what your daddy and granddaddy did for work, and you can't study only as much as they studied, so on and so forth. We forget that we've lived in a totally bewildering time you know, I started out as a foreign correspondent in India where it was, you know, eight, nine percent GDP growth. And like the society felt like it was remaking itself every three years. We unfortunately have not had, you know, eight or nine percent GDP growth, but we have had that level in many ways of churn, of change in every aspect of life. And people need help walking through it. A huge number of us are clear that we have lost certain old ways of being, certain old ways of understanding ourselves, certain old forms of esteem, habits, ways of just conceiving of who we are in this larger whole. And the new ones are like checks in the mail. Like they haven't arrived yet. They certainly haven't been cashed. People are not sure who they're gonna be in the country you and I wanna live in. Um, And deep canvassing is one thing you can do to walk with more of your neighbors and community members through the inner conflict and see if you can resolve them in the direction of more justice, more democracy, a bigger we. I love it. This has been fantastic. It's wonderful to be in conversation with you. I think everybody should go buy this book. It's, it's, uh, It's life altering and potentially democracy saving. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Uh, the book is The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. Thank you so much, Anand Giridardis, for being here with us today. I'm so grateful. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. And thank you for your always uh, always unflinching voice uh, online and off. And really, really glad to have this conversation with you and excited uh, for your podcast and where it's going to roam. Thank you so much. I think you get now why I was so excited about this episode. I encourage all of you in this week, and especially leading up to the midterm elections, to really think through the space that you can create for conversations that allow people to grow, for the prospect of building connection across identity, across movements, and within your own communities. How do we in order to form a more perfect union, in order to propel forward toward a true vision of democracy that the country has never realized, 
create space for that growth, create room for those difficult conversations that may be angry and may be divisive and still leave room for change. This was one of the most profoundly hopeful conversations I've had actually about democracy. And I hope it was for you as well. And I hope it's prompting you to consider what it means for democracy to really work, what it looks like to create a country of the world as Anand said, and what you can do to further that vision. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at NewsletterWithECM.Substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.